Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is a great team today. We've got Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing, fella? I'm good. It's good yeah. to be back. Yeah, snowing. You're out in the snow? Uh, in the snow? It was snowing yesterday. Did you? I, I, I'm I didn't see any with snow. A, I'm obsessed with a cam that's a camera that's up yeah. on... Um, uh, Lake Mountain, and ah. they, there was a lot of snow up there yesterday. Okay, yeah, was I was confused because in eastern Melbourne there was definitely no snow. Yeah, well, your elevation is pretty low. It is a bit low. Yeah, Dr. Jean, good morning. Good morning. You're How you doing? Good. You're just a week or so away from a big trip. Yeah, I know. Well, I just got back from one. I just got back from the UK and Germany mm. a little bit uh, time ago, so I've missed you guys. And then, yeah, on Saturday I'm heading to uh, Antarctica Speaking via Argentina. Snow. Yeah, yep. it's going to be cold. I'm packing thermals, lots yeah. thermals. Chris KP. Hi there. I think my favourite part of the show so far is uh, <laughs> Jen confirming it's going to be cold in Antarctica. <laughs> Just for those of you tuning in late. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Why bother going now? You're pretty much an expert. Yeah, I, I think most of the listeners... <laughs> That's what it takes these days. <laughs> <laughs> most of the listeners would have preferred the pre-show discussion about how much Jen's going to puke on the yeah. way down there on the boat. Well, we that can w- reenact that. I'm quite happy to go there again if you like. No uh, shame. Just record, puke, puke. just record it on the boat. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll send you some footage. <laughs> to play in the show. Hey, we can put that. Worst uh, boomerang ever. <laughs> oh, wait, let's not go there. All right. We've got some news for you, folks. And then uh, we, have a, we have more guests today than I could count. In fact, I just got confused out in the green room earlier because there was just so many of them. Uh, one of them actually being a dog. And uh, so that's going to be fun. We're going to talk to someone about uh, the use of dogs and PTSD and so forth. Surely we can also talk excellent. to the dog. Yep. Oh, the dog, yeah. I thought we were yeah. just going to pat them. Oh, well. We can That's do that communication. Okay. We'll do that too. Really That's good radio too, I yeah, hear. Yeah, it's good radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because you hear the noises coming out of Chris KP. When it's not right. No time it comes for you. dog making that noise. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to do some news for you first. Dr. Ewan, do you want to start off? I would like to talk about a group of organisms that are often forgotten about because they're often quite hard to see, and that's fungi. And Mm. so uh, really specious, there's millions of them around the world and probably a lot more than we currently know about. But there's obviously been a lot of talk recently in the media about climate change as well. We know we have a big issue on our hands with that, and people have been talking about various ways to tackle climate change. And one of them, of course, is to try and store carbon um, however we possibly can. And there's a study that just came out in Nature Communications talking about associations between plants and fungi, um, and often known as a symbiosis, essentially, where both both of the um, partners essentially rely on each other for various things. So in the case of plants, they get micronutrients from the fungi, so things that are really hard to pick up in the soil um, that are often quite poor in the soil, so Australian soils in particular have very, very low nutrients. The fungi actually provide those to the plants, and the plants provide back carbon, essentially, so sugars that the fungi can then use. Um, and what we know is that these these um, fungi can store a lot of carbon. Um, and so for keen gardeners, if you've basically rummaged around in the leaf litter in your garden and turned it over, you'll see this sort of white fibrous stuff. That's the fungi we're talking about, so mycorrhizal fungi. 
And they've actually quantified now around the world how many of these, um, how much, I guess, mycorrhizal associations with plants exist and how much carbon they can store. And that equates to about 350 gigatons of carbon, so a lot. (laughs) And if you have areas of habitat where you've essentially trashed that symbiosis with fungi and plants by, you know, agriculture and so forth, where you're turning the soil over a lot, you only store 29, so 12 times less. Wow. So it's a huge difference. And so the study was basically making the point that this association between fungi and plants, which has a whole range of other benefits as well, it keeps plants healthy for one. Um, also has this really potentially profound benefit of storing carbon. Mm. And if we were to treat our soils and our habitats better, mm. that would be another way of mitigating yeah. the impact mm. of climate change. So pretty pretty cool study. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how much we need to keep uh, on top of what's below the ground as well as what's above it. Absolutely. Yeah, which we, we do forget a lot. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Jen? I thought I'd go a bit controversial today and talk about kids and screen time, which I know, you know, there's a lot of talk out there. There's a fair bit of... Um, you know, fear and anxiety and and everything. But there's a pretty important study, I think, that came out this week out of Cincinnati. And basically they looked at three- to five-year-old kids that age because they're at such an important um, period of brain development Mm. and did some cognitive tests with them, then did some actual MRI scans, which has not been done with children Mm. that often, to look at the the structure of their brain. So they were particularly interested in the the white matter. They're they're calling it the white matter integrity because basically the white matter in your brain is responsible for pretty much passing messages around your brain and and, um, allowing the different parts of grey matter to communicate Mm. with each other. One of the researchers said, think of them as being like the telephone lines that allow different parts of your brain to communicate with each other. And of course, this white matter is really important for um, uh, language, other literacy skills, for kids to be able to use their imagination, but also for kind of self-regulation. So Mm. it's pretty important. So they said, well, not only will we look at the um, cognitive tests in these young kids, but we'll also actually get them in an MRI machine and understand what the structure of their brains are looking like and how they're developing as well as finding out about their screen time. So it's pretty high quality study Um, and Basically, they found out that, um, yeah, more screen time is definitely a problem. Now, clearly it's correlation, not causation. They're very Mm. quick to say that. Mm. They're not saying that screen time is causing brain damage. But what they found was that in terms of the cognitive tests, kids who spend more time watching screens, um, their expressive language is poorer and they're much slower to name objects, suggesting that that Mm. communication in the brain isn't quite as strong. So, you know, what's that called? They can name it, but just not nearly as quickly. But then actually looking at the results of the MRI scans, they found um, quite reduced development in the white matter in these kids who are having more screen time. So it's very interesting. It's pretty important stuff. So basically, they've said based on this, we're not saying that we're, you know it's mm. causing brain damage. It could, in fact, be that the time your child is spending watching a screen is just at the expense of other activities, yeah. mm. which would have led to yeah, better yeah. brain development. But they're saying, you know, under eighteen months, they are recommending on the basis of this study zero screen time for kids, mm. and between eighteen months in five years they're saying a maximum of an hour a day but not on their own so if your kid is watching something mm. you need to be there talking about it with so them I, discussing it so with I, them. I wonder if there's a difference with the nature of the screen time if it's if it's highly totally. interactive yep. that you do yeah. think that would make a difference well, so, well, the ob- the i would object think they identi- would argue that yeah, yeah okay. object identification like if it's objects for example in Fortnite, i'm sure they can identify them really quickly yeah which is <laughs> um, nice. which, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's fascinating and and the other part is you know, we you, you would probably all remember similar conversations about 
normal television when mm-hmm. we were yeah, kids. Absolutely. And, and this you know, includes television. And can obviously. you imagine, Dr. Ewan, how much smarter you and I would be if not for television? Because like, <laughs> like, it affected us, obviously. And we would just be just absolute freaking geniuses by now if not for you know our parents making us watch so much television yeah, when we I were kids completely agree yeah. but i'm sure this study included standard <laughs> television as well as all these other yeah, things but they're just yeah. you know basically the idea of plonking a kid in front of a screen yeah. for babysitting, babysitting which we've yeah. all done yeah. um that is that could be hindering brain development development compared to sitting with your kid and discussing yeah. what it is that they're saying. Yeah, but you've met the kid though, right? And that, that is a big ask. <laughs> you feed them. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Parents out there, you know what I mean. It's hard, right? <laughs> you check in every couple of hours to make sure. <laughs> well, I think um, the, the interesting thing for me actually it doesn't come out in a lot of these studies though is um, the one that I'm more fearful of I know with my kids is I prefer they watch something on a big screen a long way away mm. as opposed to a close-up screen because I think eyesight, the yeah. issue around eyesight yeah. issues totally. is really under underdone yeah. at the moment the research on that because yeah. your eye is doing work when mm. it focuses mm. on something close and the more work it does you know yeah. the the presumably you know let's hope it's not true but there's a chance there that that's doing some damage over a longer period yeah. and, you know so that's the one that i, I worry more about that yeah. your eyesight yeah. being degraded than you know ending up a bit bit dull like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens but uh, hey Harder to call to five, perhaps. Yeah. Chris KP, speaking of dull. Well, and speaking of childhood, I remember. So you'll be shocked to know that, you know, in my in my childhood, there were there were many moments where something of a scientific nature would sort of pop up and just stick in your brain. It wasn't constant, but there were many little things. And one of them was ice skating. And, you know, the fact that, you know, ice was slippery, right? And, mm. and, and ice skating is one of those things that I, I, to this day, I do approximately, I do it just the level of infrequency so that just towards the end of the session, I start getting vaguely competent. Yeah. And when yeah. I stop doing it yep. and then get back and I'm completely ass over tit next time again. So it's, I, I do that, I have done it for years. <laughs> but I remember as a kid reading somewhere that, you know, the reason ice is slippery is because when you put pressure on it, you, it melts a little bit and you mm. get this layer of water. I remember thinking, that makes mm. so much sense. Mm. Well, turns out that even though I spent the next, I don't know, decades assuming that was the case, turns out that that's actually not been confirmed. For a very long time, there was quite a lot of argument yep. about whether that even happened, whether there was a layer of water, and whether it was specifically tied to the action above it, the friction on the surface. But it gets better. So a bunch of scientists in France um, have tested this, and I'll get to the test in a moment, but essentially they've confirmed that, yes, friction on ice does form a thin layer of water. Um, and this is, you know, one of the reasons that, that things get slippery. Now, uh, when I say thin, so that's tip one, they've, they've confirmed that. When I say thin, I mean, uh, depending on the, on the particular friction of the surface areas, down to a few nanometers thin. So real thin. Mm-hmm. So you're not making puddles when you're out no, there they're not ice puddles. skating. Yeah, if you, if you fall over <laughs> and sit for long enough, you do. Uh, but no, not the actual ice skating. It's got nothing to do with the ice, though. No, no, it doesn't get up faster. <laughs> oh, don't tease Chris. He gets a bit stressed when he falls over. It was really painful. Uh, but the thing is, as we know, when you get down below to really small scales, everything's a bit different. Yeah. So what they found was that, yeah, there's a layer of water, but it doesn't behave like normal liquid water. Mm. It's actually quite viscous. It's closer to oil, um, which is really slippery. So it's quite thick, but very slippery. They make the point that liquid water is actually not especially good at lubricating. No. I mean, it's better mm. than not having it, but it's not great. But when this this thicker water that just rolls across itself really easily is very slippery. So that's why it happens. The great thing about this, though, um, is that for when this, the, the reason they've, they've discovered this instantaneous, thick-behaving water is by using essentially a tuning fork. 
Hmm. They listened to it. Oh, that's cool. Isn't it cool? Mm. So they basically planted on the ice and they calibrated against all kinds of other known mm. uh, movements. So it's a tuning fork with an accelerometer and they were able to listen to the ice, qu- uh, you know, get, get, a, get a measure from that and interpret from that what was going on underneath and got this yeah extraordinarily interesting data. Wow, yeah. I like it. I tell you, yeah. people cannot say that they're not learning things listening to this show. I mean, so far for me, the highlights, <laughs> uh, Antarctica is cold yeah. and ice is slippery. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind when Just I'm down up, there, Chris. Yes. Thanks. I'm looking out for you. I'll make sure I've got good, good, good soles on my boots. Actually, so you know good. what works really well? And I learned this in New Zealand in an iced over car park. Take your shoes off. Socks on ice, thick socks on ice, oh, yeah. is quite grippy. Yeah. Mm, okay. and, well, over time, you'll just solidify in. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You won't, That's you the won't problem. move. Yeah, yeah. Don't move stand quick. still for too long. <laughs> if I don't come back, just look for me in a uh, huddle of penguins. I'm sure to be there somewhere. No, nothing but socks and penguins. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, make sure you watch... Um, What's the film? Happy Feet. John Carpenter. No, Happy Feet. <laughs> no, 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 no. What am I thinking of? Uh, the semi-horror film from the late, early 80s. John Carpenter's... You're on um, your own. Sorry, Shane. I tell every person going to, to Antarctica... It'll come back to me in a year or two. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Great. I'll be home by then, so uh, that'll be super thing, helpful. Speaking of things that are coming back to haunt us, um, a really interesting study has been done recently by um, the team at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where they've been looking at the effects of airline travel on climate. Because mm. this is something that we're hearing more and more about. There's all these you know, amazing scientists like you and are flying all over the world and... If you're wondering how much damage that actually does, it's about 5%. It's mm. about 5% of the, mm. the global load of, of CO2. Mm. But there's an interesting um, parameter around this because you say, okay, why don't we just reduce that and change the fuels and so forth? But there's this nice balance that airlines try and get to where they try and reduce the impact on air quality, so our breathable air, versus what they're doing in terms of climate. And it's, it's quite fascinating because when you, when you look at it, you say, okay, 5% of climate emissions are caused by airline travel. And this is a number that sort of surprised me is because apparently this is really low, but about 16, their calculations say about 16,000 premature deaths are caused by the air quality problems from the airline industry. Now, that apparently is only 0.4% of that global problem. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a big mm. issue. The thing that was fascinating about this research is that for the first time it kind of quantifies those two things relative to one another. So the impact on climate versus the impact on air quality. And if you look at, um, they compare it to some of the US industries and what they've been doing. And for those industries in terms of air quality versus climate impact, it's, let's call it about one to one. So they've actually significantly improved the air quality part. They're still doing a fair bit of damage in climate, but they're about one for one. With the airline industry, though, it's about four to one. So they're actually, and four to one being a lot worse for air quality than for climate. Mm-hmm. And so you've, you've got to look at that and say, okay, if they start doing something about the air quality, what's that going to do to the impact on the climate? And this is where mm-hmm. it gets, gets difficult. So it's really nice to see these sort of calculations coming out in a, you know, quite a detailed way to say, well, hang on, you know, before you just go and change this parameter, you might make it easier for people to breathe, but you are going to put Mm. more damaging materials into the atmosphere mm. in regards to climate. And they did a really careful study of, you know, takeoff, cruising, landing, because they all use different different amounts and yep. sort of fuel put out in different places. So, and of course, the, the problem is um, it's different depending on where you are. So yeah. if you're in a location where there's higher winds, for example, you know, the air quality problems 
not as bad mm. if if you are you know somewhere where the wind just sticks around for ages then you know you get the sort of effects you're seeing in india and that at the moment mm. where sometimes you, know, you just can't what was it um the recent in, the recent um delhi uh i flew into new delhi yeah. when i was away and it was it was staggering yeah the the yeah. equivalent of two packs of cigarettes a day you that couldn't was the see health, the health impact yeah, yeah it was just phenomenal yeah. so yeah Interesting stuff. So I hope you enjoyed those cigarettes. Tax-free. Rough stuff. Anyway, we're going to take a break for some music and important station announcements, folks. And we'll be back in just a few minutes with uh, our first uh, our first guest for today. Um, well, a number of guests, but it's going to be fun. I think there'll be a, a small animal in the studio, which uh, we don't have very often. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein at Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio now, we have our first three guests for uh, today's show. We have Dr. Tiffany Howe, who's from the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University, and one of her volunteers, Angela DeCarta, who is part of a program she is running, and Heidi, which is the dog under the table. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think Jen's going to go under the table and just pat in a minute because she uh, thought that would be more interesting than talking to the rest of us. Right, Jen? I never right? said that. I just said I love dogs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's now uh, Tiffany. Thanks so much for coming in. This is a really interesting program you're working on, which is looking at the use of dogs to deal with PTSD. So, give us a bit of a rundown first of what what part of the community you're focusing on. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Um, this particular project is focused on veterans with post traumatic stress disorder (PTSD). Mm-hmm. It's funded by the Department of Veterans Affairs. So. Okay. And and how is how is this treated currently? I mean, forgetting the dogs for a moment, what what happens with people in this situation? Well, there are various types of treatments. Um, they're not my sort of area of expertise, but there are various psychological and psychiatric treatments for medications and um, you know uh, behavioral therapies and things like that that are uh, you know sort of commonly in use to to help treat PTSD today. Mm. And the use of animals, I think, is something that we've, we've heard a lot more about lately but you're you're looking at some some of the more detailed specifics about this because i think it's it's easy for us to jump on these things like you know burning candles just sounds great but in reality (laughs) does it do anything you know does it actually help me so how do you go about evaluating whether or not the use of animals is helping well uh for our study we are looking at long-term uh psychological measures uh so we'll be looking at um validated measures of ptsd symptomology as well as quality of life and also carer burden so we're also in addition to collecting data from the veterans themselves we're also talking to their you know the close people in their lives to Mm -hmm. understand how the the presence of the dog is actually impacting on their their lives as well, um, because obviously uh, it's not just the one person who um, who's affected by PTSD. It's you know it's everyone around them. So we want to understand that as well. Yeah. Um, there are several ways to to measure the effectiveness. Um, so, like I said, we'll be using validated psychological measures. Um, you can also look at, you know, physiological measures, things like cortisol, which is a sort of a measure of stress, um, things like that. Um, I've even seen a study that looked at um, fecal microbiota um, analysis. Right. So, yeah, it's a very interesting sort of brave new world uh, yeah. <laughs> in research and uh, something that we're really fascinated by. Um, the problem is with this evidence base to date is that it 
hasn't been quite as well controlled as what you might like uh, to, to see um, or what would be required for the standard of scientific evidence. Uh, so there has been plenty of research looking at the effectiveness of assistance dogs for various types of disability, but they oftentimes just use one-time points. So they'll recruit people who have had an assistance dog for quite some time and they'll ask them, so what was life, was, what was life like before you got your assistance dog right. and what is it like now? And th- there are two problems with that. One is that First of all, our memories change. You know, what we, yep. what we remember yesterday is very different to what we remember three years ago. Um, and, and every experience that we have colors our memory um, of a particular event or time. The other problem is that when you're looking at people who have assistance dogs, you're only looking at the, the success stories. Right. Um, so, and, and most of them are successful. Um, but, you know, sometimes that relationship doesn't hold or, you know, it fails for whatever reason. So we're also collecting long-term data before they get their dog. Um, and uh, and after they get the dog on a long term basis to see sort of what are the challenges, how are how are things going long term, and so on. Hmm. So just as people are different, dogs are different too. Yes. So how do you account for variation in the behaviour of individual dogs and how that might affect the outcome of a particular patient? Look, it's that's a really good question. Um, the short answer is that it's impossible to completely control for that. Um, so what we're doing instead, we're working with a provider called Centre for Service and Therapy Dogs of Australia, or CSTDA, and they have a lot of experience uh, selecting and training dogs for this particular sort of work. So they work with several different breeds. It's not all just Labradors, but often it is. Um, but we have a Legato Romagnolo, yeah. for example, in the studio today. Um, so they work with breeders and particular lines that they've, uh, that they know very well and that they're really, they, they believe possess the appropriate temperament for this sort of work. So of course there will always be individual variation and, you know, one dog, um, even a brother and sister are going to be different from each other. Um, but, it, but we do our best to sort of to control for that in terms of making sure that the dog is most likely to be a successful assistance dog or successful at the, at the particular test tasks that it wants to that it needs to be doing now angela you brought one of the dogs in for us today and you're you're there to essentially um i suppose guide the dogs partly through this process i mean what what do you have to do to make sure that heidi there heidi's comfortable over in the far corner (laughs) making making herself comfortable what what do you have to do to make sure that the dog is on the right path to being you know successful in the program um i think it's repeating uh the um I suppose all the demands and things that they need to do. Mm. Um, it's very difficult with their puppies because all they yep. want to do is play. Yeah, um, <laughs> play, so, sleep, and poo. Yes, <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so I, um, yeah, it's just that repeated and just being sort of, um, what's the word? Consistent. Consistent is the word. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and making sure you just repeat it and then they trust you and then they understand mm. and then they'll do. And I find that um, even without telling them, they know. So, it's it, for example, they learn to, when we get to a curb, they stop. So yep. Um, yep. now she does that automatically. Yeah, So yeah. I don't have to tell her that. So she knows to do that. So And, and how long do you sort of have the dog before the dog gets passed on? I mean, I, I'm just thinking you must get attached to these, these animals. Mm-hmm. Yes. I get, I've got a dog of my own, so <laughs> yeah. I get very attached. Um, I believe it's 12 months we have them for. Right. So um, I started the program, I think, back in August. Yeah. So with uh, socialising Heidi. So she's... Um, 
she's been lovely. She's been yeah. she's been a challenge at times. Yep. Um, but she's been very good. So yeah. she understands. She gets attached. She understands people. Right. Um, you know, yesterday I took her to Bendigo to the art gallery to see an exhibition. Yeah. And she was very good. The drive up, no problem. Did she like it? She did. Yeah. She, did like it. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she didn't like the uh, more, you know, later contemporary yeah, kind of fashion. But, you that's, know, that's she had more, to, yeah. Yeah, she had to yeah. go outside then and say, I've had enough. Yeah, yeah. Too much. I mean, your yeah. wolfhounds and stuff will be into that, but you know, your, smaller, <laughs> your smaller dogs aren't going to touch that with a barge pop. No, that's right. Yeah. In, in terms of the level of sophistication, I guess either of you can sort of answer this, um, of training, how, how does this sort of training for one of the dogs compare to, for example, the use of dogs for vision impaired and mm. so forth, where you know their, their lives are, you know, in those cases, their lives are literally dependent on dog getting it right. I mean, is it is a similar level of complexity? Or yes, yeah, it is. It's different, obviously. Mm. Um, the 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 main difference I'd say between people with a vision impairment and PTSD is that PTSD is a very individualized disorder. Mm. So what one veteran needs or one person with PTSD needs is going to be quite different from what another person with PTSD needs. Um, so depending on the particular symptoms that a an individual presents with, uh, the dogs will need to be trained for various different tasks. Mm. Uh, so whereas with a, a guide dog uh, for a vision impaired person, uh, you know, basically the, of course there will be individual differences, but yep. fundamentally they're about helping that person navigate successfully through their community. Yeah. And in terms of the, um, I, I suppose that the longevity of the program, how long does someone with PTSD hold on to the dog for? Because PTSD is not something that goes away overnight. So no. what, what What's the what's the timing of that? Well, the the for this particular project, they will be the the veteran once they receive their dog, they will have the dog for her entire working life. Right. So she'll just be she will work for for that veteran as long as she's able, which is usually between six and eight years. Right. So. And how many dogs are in the program? Twenty. So okay. we'll have got twenty veterans, um, yep. and we got about twenty dogs. And I hate to really ask this question, but how many do we need? Like in in a country like Australia, I mean, how many veterans are suffering from PTSD? A lot. I, I don't have the yeah. figures on that, yeah, um, but, but but the the demand I imagine is is very high. Yeah. Um, the good news is that the Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced that they will start funding assistance dogs even outside oh. of our trial. Oh, fantastic! So, so yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> that was going to be my question as well because obviously PTSD applies to other people in community as well for other yes. reasons. So yes. is this being rolled out for other people who are suffering PTSD um, aside from a military cause or? Uh, for this project, because it is funded by the, the DVA, it is um, focused specifically on veterans with PTSD. But, yes, we recognize that there are other um, groups that also suffer are, from They this. are doing that. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious whether it's happening in other areas of people who suffer from PTSD. But, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so there are um, assistance dogs for PT- for other types of people yep. with PTSD, not for this project per se, but they but they definitely do exist for you know first mm. responders, uh, survivors of child yep. uh, sexual abuse or, or um, family yep. violence that sort yeah. of thing uh yeah absolutely they they do exist mm. yeah. tiffany before we let you go i wanted to just cover one more topic quickly and that's around this issue of like where people can take their dogs and what their rights are and so forth because it seems to me as though if i was to get on a try and get on a plane with heidi here there would be a very very you know stern look and a you know back to the <laughs> gate grab yourself a little doggy cage and and check that dog in i mean what's happening in that space because that seems to if these are to work effectively across our society, they need to be accepted as part of that person's almost persona. You're absolutely right, yes. Thank you for, for asking that question. Um, 
so one of the conversations that I have regularly with people of all types of disability um, who have an assistance dog is the difficulty that they have accessing public spaces. Mm-hmm. Now, legally, they are entitled to access public spaces just about anywhere that they would need to go. So restaurants, cafes, libraries, um, not the kitchens of, of the cafes or the restaurants, right. but, you know, within the within the main area um, and, you know, lecture theaters and so on. Um, but they're often told by somebody who just doesn't understand the law, I suppose, that they're not actually permitted to go into those places. And then they either have they have to make a choice. Either they become a disability advocate and they have to talk about, oh, well, this is why I'm allowed. The law is behind me on this. Or they, um, particularly for somebody with a psychiatric disability like PTSD, they might choose to just not have that conversation at all they, mm. they may not they may struggle with the confrontation yeah. um and and they just leave and that's not that's not good enough either so um so it is really important that people throughout the community understand that these dogs do have the right to go just about anywhere that their owner would need to go mm. planes are the example that you mentioned and they're a slightly different case um but most so they're not automatically allowed onto planes because of the federal aviation laws but um if you if you know if somebody with an assistance dog approaches, you know, Qantas or Virgin or uh, whatever other um, airline, and they ask for permission in advance to bring their dog, then usually they will be um, they'll be accommodated. Mm. So. And, and how do you make the distinction? Like, how does a person make the distinction there between it being an assistance dog and just my pet? <sighs> so, because that seems to be, you know, if I just rock up at a cafe, <laughs> there's there's still that point of confrontation in the way of like, yes. Uh, you know, hang on, you can't just bring your dog in here. Oh, it's an assistant dog. Sorry. I mean, how, how is that identified? Uh, that's another really good question and an important issue because in practice, according to the law, the definition of, of an assistance dog is a dog that is trained to a very high standard of hygiene and behavior in public and mm-hmm. that also helps the, the owner or handler to mitigate the impacts of their disability. So basically, at its core, if somebody says, this is my assistance dog, then it is. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So what I would really like to see on a as a as a you know an individual working in the space is some sort of national identifying um, or you know sort of certifying sort of ID I suppose you yep. know some sort of government issued this is my assistance dog it's real you know that mm. she's not you know she's really been trained for this um, but right now it's sort of uh, that has not happened yet but but a lot of providers will offer an, an ID of sorts right. so, um, yeah. so most of the major providers will have something that they that they offer and and you know if somebody is in doubt then they can call uh, the provider and the provider yeah. can confirm yeah oh, look it's a, it's a fascinating area and I think it's one that is certainly picking up speed as dogs are being used more in this uh, how far away are we from you sort of getting the results of, of what you're doing? Well, um, hopefully we'll have preliminary results in the next maybe six months or so. Mm-hmm. We've had our first cohort of veterans in since sort of February and March. So um, we've been collecting data on them. Um, and uh, the, But the study itself, the, long, uh, the long-term study, will be wrapping up in 2022. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, you and Angela and Heidi, for, I think is I, I felt something right underneath my chair, actually. So I think she's parked herself under, the, under my chair, which is cool. Uh, Jen has stolen that dog, by the way. She's already got she, she, I noticed... Yeah, got the lead. All nice. Um, Thanks so much for coming. It's great to see Latrobe doing this sort of work, and I hope it's very successful and you'll have a lot of fun doing it as well. Thank you very much. Yes, we're definitely having fun. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we're back in just a few minutes with our next two guests for today. Triple R. 
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now, we have two guests here to talk about genomics. We have Gillian Hastings-Ward from the UK and also Kate Birch, who is the Data and Technology Manager of Melbourne Genomics. Welcome, both of you, to the Triple R Studios. Thanks Hello. Very much. Thank you. Gillian, I want to start with you because you have had, a, I, I suppose, a personal experience with the way genomics can assist people medically and so forth um, over a protracted period. So can you run us through that story of what's happened you know, with, with your family and how genomics has sort of been part of that. Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, we live in Britain, the first thing to say. Um, but uh, my son is now five and a half. And when he was born, we thought he was a perfect child. Mm-hmm. But by the time he was a couple of months old, we realised he couldn't actually see anything. Mm. And we weren't quite sure why that was. Biologically, his eyes seemed to function just fine. Nobody could tell us what was wrong. Um, and um, we were just told to take him home and carry on, really. Wow, but, yeah. um by the time he was a year old, he wasn't meeting any neurodevelopmental milestones that they would have expected him to. And so everyone realised that perhaps there was something more fundamental at play rather than just his vision being a problem. So they, there's a barrage of blood tests and other invasive tests they could do, and they ran them all and, and didn't come up with anything mm. particularly conclusive. Um, and by the time he was 18 months old, he had been having quite significant seizures as well, which were subsequently diagnosed as epilepsy. So right. there's a lot of things going on there. It's a, such a mm. difficult combination of things for him to did, cope with. Did they have, I mean, just to jump in there, at the time when they were doing these tests, did they have some ideas as to what they were looking for. I mean, this is one of the things I've often found curious in the medical profession is like, let's just do some tests. Um, whereas, you know, <laughs> the idea of, okay, we, we, these symptoms fit these specific things. We're going to test for that because blood tests are many and varied and you have to take a lot of blood to do them all. So what were they going after? That is a very good question. And in some cases, as patients, you don't ever really get to find out. They just say, mm. oh, it, it, that test didn't tell us anything. Carry oh, on. Right. Yeah. Um, they did some white cell enzyme tests, which I think were looking for particular developmental things. Um, they did lumbar punctures. They did um, oh MRI scans yeah. of his brain under general anaesthetic and were able to say, you know, functionally or, you know, stru- structurally his brain looks just fine. But we still don't know why it's not working properly. <laughs> no, it's not very, uh, not very reassuring when the doctors just go, oh, it must be at a molecular level. Sorry, we can't see that. <laughs> Try wow. again. Yeah. Um, so by the time he was 18 months old, we really had drawn so many blanks, we didn't really know what else to do other than just take him home and love him. But somebody suggested that we sign up for genome sequencing as part of the 100,000 Genomes Project, which mm-hmm. was just getting off the ground in, in England at the time. And so they sequenced my genome, they sequenced my husband's genome, and they sequenced the blood sample from Sam. And that, over time, has enabled us to find out what's wrong with him. Mm. And, I mean, if you don't mind us asking, what, what is going on there and how is it related to your your and your husband's genetic profiles? Well, that's a really interesting question. And, in fact, it turns out it's not related to us at all. Well. He has a de novo mutation on a gene called GRIN1, which is fundamental for brain function and various other things. Um, and uh, it was really reassuring to hear that it was a de novo variant because he has a sister and we were really worried that although she seems fine at the moment, we didn't know whether she'd pass something on to a future generation or not. Mm. And it turns out she won't. So right. that's great. <laughs> and, and talk us through the, the sort of genomic testing part. What, what's involved there? I mean, you, you spoke a moment ago about things like lumbar punctures and, you know, essentially general anesthesia for MRIs. I mean, these, these are really nasty things to be doing to little kids. And especially when you get no answers, you think, well, <laughs> what was that for? What, what's involved in the genomics element of it? 
In in relative terms, that was extremely straightforward. It was just literally one blood sample from each of us that got sent off to the sequencing mm-hmm. centre. And they do some very clever stuff there. Perhaps Kate's better place to talk about the mm-hmm. technical side of things. But um, they, they sequence the data. So they, they write down, essentially, a list of the different letters of DNA code in your entire genome. And then they're able to do a comparison between you and your parents, or Sam and his mm-hmm. parents in, in our case. But also then, if there's particular... Um, t- symptom information that they think might be relevant, then they can start looking in the area of the genome which is responsible for epilepsy or you know the, the known genes that have an association with the characteristics that he's displaying and, and then um, investigate those and, and in our case rule out quite a lot of the epilepsy based genes. Yeah. But uh, Grin 1 is one of these um, which had only relatively recently been identified in the academic right. literature. Yeah. So when our clinical geneticist came back and said, yep, yeah, we think it's Grin 1 that's the problem um, but you're the first person in in the NHS to be diagnosed with this if that's what happens. So here's the three PDF articles that I found on the internet. Can you read them and tell us whether that sounds like him or not? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which was quite an interesting start. Yeah. And it really affected the balance of the relationship between clinician yeah. and patient because yeah. suddenly you're an equal contributor to the discussion about what might happen next. Yeah, it's fascinating too in a scenario where typically clinicians very deliberately try to keep you out of you know, Googling your things and they're saying, don't do that. Don't. Whereas you're, you've been in quite the opposite situation where they're saying, hang on, you need to go and read these PDFs Absolutely. because we haven't seen this stuff before and, you know, you're going to be just as up to date as we are. It's, it's, it, that's quite a role reversal to everything you would have probably experienced. Absolutely. But it, we see this as quite a common theme in ultra rare disease that, mm. you know, with the best will in the world, nobody's medical training could ever cover every potential gene yeah. disorder there is. And now that sequencing has come along, there's the ability to differentiate at more granularity than ever before between patients so there's a real onus on families to become expert in their own condition in order to then work with the people who've got the clinical skills to take forward some ideas about how to treat them yeah fascinating now kate in terms of uh, what's happening at melbourne genomics uh, we've had a few guests on over the years uh, Mm. talking about melbourne genomics just a a, a quick uh, highlights of of what melbourne genomics yeah what are are you up to here so melbourne genomics is an alliance of hospitals and research organizations across melbourne came together in about 2014 with the intention of getting genomics actually into practice so we had a group of organizations who were seeing the real potential of genomics and Mm -hmm. what it could do so this is really an implementation project so melbourne genomics has spent the first phase of our work understanding when is the right time to give a a, to, to offer a genomic test how should that happen where is there real benefit in these tests um, and at the same time understanding how to do that in a way that um, works well with patients that is ethical that treats their data with respect and now we're in a, in a position of really helping hospitals implement this and preparing them for this wave of genomics that's coming because genomic medicine is absolutely coming there is a wave of this information yep. that's going to hit our healthcare system so we want to make sure that our hospitals are ready to get these yeah. tests in and benefiting patients yeah it, how much is the sort of genomics sort of wave going to be in the prevention space versus the you know as is the case here the diagnostic space that we've been talking about because it seems to me as though you know a lot of the ones we hear about actually are more letting you know you might have susceptibility for this yeah so the the genomic testing that's really ready for clinical showtime at the moment is more in the diagnostic space mm-hmm. okay. so melbourne genomics has worked a lot with patients that present with particular clinical symptoms and working out what is either their diagnosis or what treatments will make them better mm. there is this wave though coming after that of the preventative work and that, but that's still a little bit out of the clinic so melbourne genomics is really focused on finding patients who would benefit from a test today right so we've helped over three thousand people have access to a genomic test and about 40 percent of those have had a change in their treatment or um, an, a better understanding 
understanding of their condition because of that test, which is a, a huge amount of people that have mm. benefited. So that so was one of the things I wanted to ask you was around how does the diagnostic capability change with genomics? I remember once speaking to a clinician from on the show, actually, from the Children's, the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne, about what you know, what does it mean to have rare diseases in his, his area and, and diagnosing them? And he, he said he diagnosed 200 patients in 10 years. And uh, when I first heard that, I thought, well, well you just work on Thursdays? Like, yeah. it, it, didn't seem like a, it didn't seem like a lot. Yeah. Um, but then when he described the difficulty level, it was like, mm. wow, you did too. That's, that's phenomenal. Well done. You know, uh, how, how does the genomics example of that compare to the traditional way of doing that sort of um, diagnosis? So um, particularly in the, the paediatric rare condition space, the diagnostic journey that these patients go on, we often call it a diagnostic odyssey, odyssey is yeah. long and expensive mm. and painful. It often involves mm. a really painful and and, um, tests that introduce a whole lot of clinical risk for these patients. So genomics in comparison is so simple. (laughs) It's a little blood test and it can have such a huge, huge benefit to the family. Um, So there is the potential that we could be diagnosing people much faster, much more quickly, and hopefully more than 200 over 10 years is Mm. going to be the outcome of that. And what I found really fascinating in these tests is that, you know, there's a lot of patients that don't get a diagnosis through their genomic test just yet. But we're finding that if you come back to their data a few years later, we've learnt so much more about rare diseases, about how these particular gene changes affect their health, that actually we're getting more people being diagnosed over time. So this is actually a test now and for the future. Yep. So, so currently, what, what triggers that decision? So in, in Gillian and Sam's case, you know, they were at a dead end, like there was nothing else. Yeah. But if I'm being treated for you know, various symptoms and if that treatment is having some impact... Mm then why would I bother getting a genetic test? Yeah, so there's lots of studies around the world that have used genomic tests as a test of last resort. So they're very Mm. expensive, they've become a lot cheaper, but they are very expensive, and so people will exhaust all other options and then add a genomic test. And what we've actually found is that genomics is much, much more useful when you do it early. So Mm. actually, as soon as things start to get a bit complicated and you have a clinician that says, you know what, there may actually be an underlying genetic cause, there's some evidence that shows that that's when you can add the test in, which is really fantastic. We don't need to wait till the end of a yes, long and painful yes. process. Mm. In, in terms of uh, the use of genomics, one of the areas that I know there was a lot of interest in early on, though, assume it's still there, is exactly what kind of psychological discussions you have with patients around the, that genomic information. Because, mm. I mean, uh, Gillian, as you said, you, went and you had a genomics test, your husband had a genomics test, and you had one for Sam as well. And I'm guessing there may be other other things that come out of those tests beyond what you found. I mean, what what's I mean, maybe Gillian, you can answer this. I mean, what sort of discussions did you have around that? That's a good question. For us, it was fairly straightforward. You know, this is the last game in town. Let's have, mm-hmm. let's try it. Yep. But for other people, especially if they've had a long and painful journey of their own rare condition, they don't necessarily want to submit themselves to any further investigation in some cases. Mm. I think there's a risk. There's always a risk of unanticipated findings coming through. I think that's really yep. what you're asking about, isn't it? So uh, most people have an opportunity or have had an opportunity so far to speak to a genetic counsellor of some sort right. before they consent to giving their blood for this kind of a test. So they can talk there around the kinds of things you might find out in addition or instead of what actually a diagnosis for your own problem. Mm. So, you know, I think um, paternity questions inevitably do pop right. up yeah. now yeah. and yeah. again. Yeah. But um, uh, certainly with the way that the 100,000 Genomes Project was um, set up in England, they were only ever going to be offering to tell anybody something that was actionable. Yeah. So identifying something that would be responsive and uh, responsive to any treatment or potentially for any further screening that if you if it 
it's established that perhaps you have a predisposition to a certain form of mm. um, heart condition or something, yeah. then they could put you on the list for early screening for that. Yeah, very interesting. And what, one thing I don't quite understand, and maybe there's some ethics around this, but when, when a baby is born, there are a number of tests that we do by default. You check their heart, you check their lungs, you check various other things. What's the difference between us doing that and a standardised genomics test for every child that is born? That is a very interesting and very relevant question. There was an announcement this week in England that this is something that the government wants to push forward with at a massive scale, and I think we're not really quite ready for that in mm. terms of being able to cope with the consequences of the information that would come out. You know, the, the standard blood spot test that you have as a newborn yep. can tell you about things which, again, are actionable, which present in very early childhood, are things that doctors should need to know early on. The potential for a genetic test is to tell you a whole lot more things that might not become apparent until way further down the mm. line, if at all. Mm. So there is still a philosophical and an ethical argument about what it is that you tell people at what stage in yeah. their life course about what they have. Well, it's interesting to me because we will do a Down syndrome test before the child is even born, which to me fits into very much the same category as what you're talking about with genomics. Um, it's it's long-term stuff. Uh, it you know, the decisions you get to make as a result of that are pretty profound. In fact, you, you could argue they're more profound than what you'd get from a genomics test at that point. So, Absolutely. Yeah. A- antenatal screening brings a whole lot of other yeah. questions with it about yeah. the acceptability of disability and all these other issues. Yeah. So, um, Kate, we've, we've got all this data. You know, we're, we're collecting all this data. Melbourne Genomics has got all this data. Enter CRISPR into the room. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, in, in cases where you have individual genes or a few genes causing problems, I mean, how does this start to play together now? Because we're, we're getting into this space, and I know CRISPR is often talked about as a precision device, which to me seems more like a club because we don't, you know, we don't really know what modifying one gene does to the entire organism. You know, but it's, it's often talked about as a precise device. I mean, mm. w- what does this mean with all the genomics information we have and all of a sudden we've got this scalpel genomic tool? In terms of clinical usage, we don't know what it means yet. So um, Melbourne Genomics has been really careful to focus on those things that have really near-term clinical utility for patients. And while we know CRISP is coming and it's over the horizon, it's not an area that we've started to play with yet. I mean, we're talking just at breakfast this morning that um, the... Genomics is so much more complicated than anybody mm. can possibly imagine. Mm. And one tiny variation in your genetic code yeah. can have such wide-ranging effects that we have a long way to go before we're going to be sure enough to start changing something in someone's code. Yeah. But it's it's an exciting future. Yeah. We'll all have to see where it goes. Yeah, that's no, great. And I suspect uh, a big part of it, Julian, for you is just knowing exactly what's wrong is, a, is, a, is great, actually having that knowledge and not just wandering through the dark with no, no information. Absolutely. Having a name for the gene or having identified which gene is, is the problem has been really useful to us in finding a whole network around the world of yep. other people who've got similar disorders and we're actually now able to work together to start thinking about fundraising for the researchers who are working in this space who again are ultra rare uh, but they are out there mm. and um, they have uh, some good ideas about um, targets within the gene of, of um, where the main variants are and, and what to start looking at to yep to help that mm. well Julian, Kate thanks so much for coming and chatting to us today good luck with the ongoing work and Julian, thanks so much for sharing your personal story thank you very much can I just add one plug for an event that we're doing on Thursday this week Um, at the State Library at half past six on Thursday evening there's going to be a a public forum um, where um, Professor Gaff from the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance is going to be speaking along with the Chief Scientific Officer for the NHS
NHS, Prof James Sue Hill and me about the, the impact that DNA testing could have and, and d- medical on, on the, um, uh, medicine in this country and beyond. Mm. Um, so that's 6.30 on Thursday at the State Library. Fantastic. Excellent. And I'm assuming that's all on the Melbourne Genomics Absolutely. website. So people can look that up if they've missed it. Folks, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you both for coming in. Thank you. Thanks. Triple R. Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. We're almost out of time, but before we went, I wanted to just check in with Dr. Jen. What are you doing in Antarctica? Uh, I am part of the Homeward Bound movement, which is a a global organisation trying to equip more women with a background in science with uh, leadership skills, essentially, to try and save the planet. So just a small mission. So Hmm. um, I'm part of the onboard faculty uh, teaching around uh, communication and visibility. There's also teaching around um, science and strategy and leadership. And this trip is the culmination of a 12-month program for 100 women from, I think it's 34 different countries around the world who are all meeting in Ashwire, um in about a week's time. Yeah. So and just head on down and chill out and and uh, watch the thing. I yeah, don't, don't think there'll be much chilling out. There'll be a there'll lot be a lot of, of chilling out actually. Yeah. Well, <laughs> only for uh, for yeah. those people who haven't bought enough Ka-ching. thermals. Yeah. I want to see a selfie with an emperor penguin. That's what I'll we're do all my looking best. for, right? Yeah. I will do my best. <laughs> don't come without one. I don't know if you can get that close. They can be a bit. They, yeah, they've got a decent beak on them. Yeah, they'll give it to you. And they're probably about Jen's height too. Yeah, thanks for outing me for the shrimp that I am. <laughs> Radio listeners don't know that. <laughs> oh, no, boy, it's, it's, a, it's a big honour. It's going to be extraordinary. That's Amazing great. group of women. Well, we're going to try and get you on the phone when you're down there. We'll see so how we go. I, I understand that um, we we have some phones now here in, you know, in the studio that we can use. I'm pretty sure the NBN will be faster down there than this <laughs> in Melbourne. So we should be right on that we'll front. We'll see how we go. We'll see if we can, we can hook something up. That'd be, that'd that'd be, be great. Fun. Yep. Ewan, thanks so much for coming Pleasure, in. Pleasure, as always. You. We'll see you uh, probably next year now. Won't I'll we see you think? next year. Yeah. Have yeah, a wonderful well, end to the year, everybody. We'll chat to you again soon. Chris KP, always good, always yeah, fun. it was grass, mate. Uh, I'm Dr <laughs> Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, <laughs> despite Chris's sarcasm. Uh, we're going to hand over to the team from either. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.